We've been working our way through Ephesians, expository preaching, taking verse by verse, passage by passage. And my goal is simply to read the text to you, to explain the text, and to apply the text. Last week, we looked at dead men walking in the first part of chapter 2. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 described our position as natural men and women before Christ saved us. And this week, I simply want to preach a message made alive in Christ from these next few verses. I'm going to read to you Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 7. Let me just start in verse 1. We want to get the context. I mean, this is a drastic contrast between these first three verses and the next few verses. This is a a huge contrast. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I think Paul's answering an important question here for us. If I was to ask you the question, what defines a genuine believer in Christ? You could give me some good answers, and we all would would give answers like this. Trusting in in the Son of God for salvation. Repenting of your sin and following the Lord Jesus all of your life. Being justified by faith alone, that's a great answer to define a Christian. But I believe what Paul's trying to say in this whole book of Ephesians and what the the New Testament teaches is the very thing that defines a Christian is Christ himself and being in Christ. Because all those benefits that I just listed, justification, sanctification, living the Christian life, trusting in Christ, they all flow out of being united with him. It's a doctrine called union with Christ. And you've heard me Read about it in these few verses here. In chapter 1, it came up a few times as well. And we're going to see it multiple times throughout the book of Ephesians. Being united with Christ. Even being made alive is in Christ. In other words, you have to be in Christ to be made alive. Those things happen together, in other words. I think that's what defines a genuine Christian believer. Being united with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when we were unbelievers, as I read to you in the first few verses... When we were unbelievers, we were united with the world. We were united with the devil. We were united with the lusts of our flesh. And now there's a huge contrast. God's done something and he's done it in Christ. So we're really looking at union with Christ. It's an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. You can't deny being united with Christ if you're a Christian. You understand the Bible's teaching on that. John Calvin said that our union with Christ is so essential to our understanding of the gospel that if we confuse that doctrine, if we get confused about union with Christ, we run the risk of seeking something other than Christ himself. We began to chase the blessings that are promised in the Bible instead of first 
seeking Christ and then receiving the blessings. What is union with Christ? It's a supernatural union. It's not physical like a marriage would be, but it's a supernatural union that is accomplished by the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. We're going to see Paul talk about that. He's not going to use Holy Spirit language, but he is going to talk about being born again. So it's a union that is by the Spirit at the moment of salvation. It's a vital union, which means every believer has to have it. It's life-giving. When you're united with Christ, that is what promises you eternal life. It's, it's not based on your works. It's not based on even on your faith and repentance. You, you just heard me read the passage. Nothing about faith. Nothing about repentance. That's coming up later. But first, Paul wants to talk to us about God and about Jesus Christ and our union with him. And this union also is eternal. It's eternal. It will be everlasting if you're united with Christ. Once you're united, it can't be broken either. It's indissolvable. Satan can't break it. The world can't break it. Your own flesh can't break it. You can't lose your salvation. And you can't be a Christian and kick off Christ and not be united with him. It's not possible. But it is a real union with the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're not just talking figures of speech. We're not just talking metaphors. You truly are united with Him in a spiritual way when you're saved, when you're born again. So union with Christ is a major theme in the New Testament, especially in the epistles and especially in the writings of Paul. We could call him a a theologian of union with Christ. This shows up in Romans and Ephesians and Galatians and Philippians. So what I want to show you here in this passage are four blessings of being united with Christ. Four blessings of being united with Christ. Not so we can chase the blessings. Paul's going to say, every time he mentions these, he's going to say, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. But if you are in Christ, you need to understand better these blessings that God has given us. What has God given us? What has God done for us? You can be saved and be fuzzy on these things. You can be saved and not truly understand that that man is dead in trespasses and sins. But Paul's written it here for us, for the age of the church to learn, to study, and to realize what God has done. So we can praise him more. So we can thank him. And so we can tell other people about this message, a wonderful message of the gospel. Four blessings of being united with Christ. The first one, and the biggest one, and the one we'll spend the most time on. We have been regenerated in Christ. We've been regenerated. We've been made new, is another way to say regenerated. These are the first two verses, verses 4 and 5. Paul is opening up this idea that, yes, we were dead, but now we're alive. Yes, we were dead, but now we've been made new. Yes, we were born in a natural state, but now we're born again. That's what he's getting at in verse 4. But God. And remember, in the original Greek, which the New Testament was written in, this is all one sentence. Verse 1 all the way down through 7. It's all one sentence. And it's all building up to the main verb we're going to find in verse 5. So he's returning now to what God has done, but God. You were all these things before Christ saved you. But God has done something. But God has changed something. And it's because of his mercy that he's made us alive in Christ. It says, but God being rich in mercy. 
Now that's quite a contrast between what he just finished in verse 3. Look at the end of verse 3. We were by nature. You remember last week I said that's, that's how you are when you're born, when you're conceived. By nature, children of wrath. Children of wrath. The wrath of God. The wrath of God, Jesus said, abides upon the person that is not believing in him. The wrath of God is coming upon the world that does not believe in Christ. Children of wrath, total depravity, meaning that we're born by nature because of Adam's fall. We're born with a sin nature. We inherit that through the ages, through, the, through our parents, all the way back to Adam. And, and there's, a, there's a sin nature that we have when we're conceived. And we come out into the world, it's not long as we're going up before we start to sin and we start to act out upon that nature. And that's what Paul's describing. And because of all those things, and he proved it to us in verses 1 and 2 and first part of 3, and then he says, God's wrath is upon all those who are not in Christ. By nature, children of wrath. But God being rich in mercy. It's God's wrath that's poured out on unbelievers, but it's God's mercy that saves. It's God's mercy that he gives to those in Christ. He'll go on to talk about God's love. He'll go on to talk about God's grace. God in his sovereignty has chosen to have mercy on some. To have mercy on some. I like the way R.C. Sproul puts it. He says, you have 10 people who sin, five get mercy, and five get punished in eternity forever. Which one's got injustice? None. There's no injustice with God, the Bible tells us. What happened? Five got mercy, right? And five got justice. The five who God saved and showed mercy, they received his mercy. The five that he punished for eternity received justice. Neither group got injustice. God can give his mercy to whom he chooses. That's the point of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him. Then he goes on to talk about how he predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ. It's God's grace. It's God's choice. It's God's mercy. It's God's love. There's nothing here about your mercy and your love and your works or any of those things. It's God's sovereignty and it's God's mercy that does it. Romans 9.15 is quoting from the Old Testament where God's speaking to Moses For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And instead of getting upset at God about it like the world does, as as people in Christ, we should be happy that God showed anyone mercy. He didn't have to. He didn't have to. also came across another quote this week, just in passing, where an old lady comes up to Charles Spurgeon, and she says, I don't understand. I don't understand why God hated Esau. I didn't say God hated Esau. And Spurgeon says, I don't have a problem understanding that. You know, we're all sinners and God hates sin. He hates the sinner. But my problem, Spurgeon said, is why God loved Jacob. Why does God love Jacob? Because if you read the Old Testament, Jacob is a sinner too. He's a wily little guy and God showed mercy on him. Romans 9.23, it teaches us there, continuing in, in Paul's argument in Romans 9, he teaches that God continues to endure with, with the sinful world because he wants to, quote, to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. Vessels of mercy, the vessels that he's pouring mercy into, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. So we're already getting a clue as to why God is going to choose some to make them born again, choose some to show his mercy, because he's a merciful God. 
But it goes on. Paul doesn't stop there. He goes a level deeper because of his great love in verse 4. Because of his great love, which he loved us. Mercy is, is showing kindness to, to someone who doesn't have much. Mercy is showing pity on someone who's in need. But beyond that, because you can, you can give somebody food, a homeless person, for example, you can give them food, but not necessarily really love them. This is saying God showed his mercy on us and he has a great love from which he loved us. How great is God's love that, that he would take a person dead in sin, a rebel against him, a child of wrath, and save them. He hasn't even got to the part where we're made alive. He's just building up, building up, talking about who God is. He takes a, a rotten dead sinner like me and he gives me new life because of his great love. Why did God choose me? Why did God save me? There's only a few answers you can give that are biblical. One of them is because of his great love. Because of his great love. In our Bible studies recently, we've been going through 1 John, and 1 John talks a lot about loving one another. And especially in 1 John 4, these last few weeks, we've been studying the love of God and how it works itself out in believers. 1 John 4.10. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but what? That he loved us. We didn't love God first. He loved us first is the idea and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. The only way we can even love one another in this body is because God first loved us. That's the great love that Paul's talking about here. Because of his great love, because of his mercy, because of his great love in which he loved us. So he's using agape here twice. Now we get to verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. Paul's reminding us once again what he's already taught. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. Even when we loved the world and wanted to please the world. And even when we tried to do good things, they were just to show others in the world how great we are. And even though we love the devil, we would never admit that, most of us, as unbelievers. But we did. Paul says we were serving the prince of the power of the air, who, who rules over the spirit of mankind, the attitude now working in the sons of disobedience. That's who we were. We were sons of disobedience. And we loved the lusts of our flesh. We just wanted to do what we wanted, our desires. Forgetting about what God requires, we wanted to do what our desires wanted. And our mind, he says, he doesn't let us off the hook. He doesn't just say, you know, it's just a sin when you act upon it. No, even in the mind, he said, we were desiring, lusting after things we shouldn't have. Even when we were in that state, God made us alive together with Christ. What did you do? Where are you in verse 5? You're on the receiving end. He made us alive. God did something for you. I don't see anything in there about what you're supposed to do because you can't do anything. You're dead. What can a dead man do? What can a dead man do? Can he get up? Can he get up and run to God? Can he get up and and start praising God of his own power? God's got to do something first. And that's what Paul's been building from verse 1 all the way to this one. This is actually the first main verb that we see in verse 5. Everything else previous to this in this chapter, it's just a building up to he made us alive together with Christ. Not, not together as in all of us together, but each one of us together with Christ. We're, we're no longer dead, but alive. And he's not pointing to a future resurrection either, because this is past tense. This is the aorist tense in Greek. It's something that's already happened, Paul said. He made us alive already together with 
Christ. He's not talking about a physical resurrection here. We will have that as Christians eventually. But he's talking about a spiritual resurrection, a spiritual change of heart that every believer has at the moment of salvation. The analogy here that he's trying to make and the together with Christ is that we've been united with Christ in his death. And we've been raised with Christ in his resurrection. So he's dead physically. We were dead spiritually. He's raised again physically. We're raised again spiritually. We were dead spiritually, and Christ has raised us again spiritually. Now, our newness of life does not end there. It will carry on throughout this life. When he returns, we'll have a body to go along with that newness of life. But right now, you wouldn't look at one another in the church and say, wow, you have a new physical body. You've been raised from the dead. You've been resurrected. And maybe some cults say that, but it's talking about inside. It's talking about the heart. You have a new heart. You've been born Again, you've been born again. You made alive again. The King James said quickening, quickening. The idea of of a a force that's quickening inside. Often women in in older times in English would use a baby moving inside. That would be called the quickening. You would feel the life inside you. And So the King James used quickening way back in verse 1 to kind of let you know where this passage is going. But this is describing the doctrine of regeneration, the doctrine of being born again. The doctrine that makes us, or not the doctrine itself, but but God is teaching us through that doctrine that he's the one changing the heart. We read this morning in Deuteronomy in class how it's a circumcision of the heart. That God's going to make a covenant where he circumcises the heart. That's describing regeneration, the work of the Holy Spirit in creating new life in a sinful person. How does that person who was once dead suddenly become alive? We're dead spiritually, but we become alive how? The Holy Spirit creates new life in the sinful person. And then, and only then, can we have faith and can we repent. That all happens in a snap second. I mean, it's all instantaneous from our view. But no, God says, first, you have to have a new heart. Then you repent and believe. Because it's all of His grace. He'll come back to that in 2, 8, and 9. God changes our hearts. Other phrases describe this regeneration in the Bible, circumcision of the heart. In the Old Testament, even in Romans 2, Jesus talks about being drawn to him. They can only be drawn to him if the Father first draws them. First Peter talks about the new birth. John 3, which we'll look at in a moment, talks about being born again. Ephesians 2 here is being made alive. Ezekiel 36, taking out the heart of stone and giving a heart of flesh. Acts 16 describes Lydia having her heart opened to the Lord. Being called out of darkness into light is another way of describing it and being made a new creation in 2 Corinthians 5. A new creation. Brand new. Not like the old creation, the natural creation, the the dead in sins, but a new creation. Uh, It's an act of God. that It runs parallel also to divine calling, or what we might call irresistible grace, where, where God calls the heart. You hear the message externally, but God calls the heart internally. And at the same time, the Holy Spirit comes and changes your heart if you are one that ends up in Christ. If you're one that exercises faith, that has repentance, God has done that work. God has done that work. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, I've always been a Christian. I've always been a Christian. Always been a Christian. No, you haven't. No, you haven't because it says right here, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. 
You may have grown up in the church. You may have had Christian parents. Somebody may have even sprinkled some water on you as a baby, but that doesn't make you a Christian. What does this passage say makes you a Christian? That God made you alive again in Christ. According to the word of God, you are not always a Christian. Now, maybe you got saved at a young age, but even then, he says, you were all, even we, he says later, he includes himself, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. And then at a later point in time, God changed your heart. God changed your heart. Don't think that you were always a certain way that the Bible says you're not. Then, uh, parenthetically here, he says, by grace, you have been saved. You see that in verse 5? Just, just a little parentheses. By grace, you have been saved. Or maybe your Bible has, has a little dashed line there to separate this out. It's just a little phrase that he throws in there. It's a preview of what's coming in verses 8 and 9. So we'll get to that next week. But why does he put it here? He wants the reader to know that even this being made alive is not us doing it. Now he'll open that up a bit more in 8 and 9. But he just wants you to know it's not you who did this. You're dead in your transgressions and sins. You have to be born again. And he's done it. And he's done it. You have been saved by grace. You've been saved, he says. That's in the perfect passive tense. It means God's already done it. You still have some results of it, of course, ongoing, but it's already been completed in the past. And it's passive, which means you received it. God's the one who did it. You have been saved. This is God's grace alone. Sola gratia, one of the five solos of the Reformation, that you could do nothing to earn God's righteousness. God had to do it himself. God had to send his son. God had to complete that transaction upon the cross. Sola gratia, by God's grace alone. It's God's free grace, God's special grace alone. There's no one who can interfere with that. There's no one who can earn that. There's nothing that can interfere with that. There's nothing that can help you earn that. It is God's act alone. He alone saves. He doesn't look into the future to see what you will believe. He doesn't look down through the corridors of time to see if you might trust in him and then work backwards to use his grace to save you. He first sends his grace out of his own mercy, out of his own love. Then you have faith. Then you repent. But it's God's grace that saves you, not any action upon your own. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, there it is again, according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So because Jesus was raised from the dead, now we can be raised from the dead spiritually and someday, of course, physically. It's a promise that was in the Old Testament, the new covenant. We talked a bit about that in class this morning as well, the new covenant. The new covenant, Jesus said he was going to ratify in his blood on the cross. Let me just read to you Ezekiel 36. And tell me if this doesn't sound very similar to what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 2. Ezekiel 36, 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a new heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That's the new covenant. That, that someone who's in the new covenant because they're in Christ... Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. So if you're in him, you receive these blessings. They were given to Israel, but they're also now opened up to the Gentiles. And he says, I'm going to take that heart of stone out that made you dead. That you were dead, so your heart was all stony. I'm going to take it out and rip it out, put a new heart with life. And the Holy Spirit's going to be there as well. And you want to do what God's told you to do. 
That's a mark of a Christian. You want to do what God commands us to do. Doesn't mean you're going to be perfect at it, but you want to do it. You desire to do it. That's part of having a new heart. Back to 1 Peter. Peter has a lot to say about the new birth because he he knew what that meant. He had had seen Jesus, heard Jesus teach on it. Peter goes on to say in 1 Peter 1.23, For I have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. So how does this birth, new birth happen? Are you just walking along one day and then suddenly God zaps you? No, something has to happen. You have to hear the gospel. You have to hear the the word of God. The, The word of God comes into your mind and then maybe that first time, but maybe later you're chewing on it or you hear it again and again and again. At some point, if you're saved, if you're in Christ, through the word, God changed your heart. It's the Spirit's word. You hear it. The Spirit comes into your heart connects it all together, gives you a new heart to believe what you hear. Titus 3.5, Paul says, look, this regeneration, it excludes works. It's not of any works. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. There it is again. By the washing of regeneration and by renewing by the Holy Spirit. Titus 3.5. How did he save us? He, before he even tells you how in Titus 3, 5, he first says it's not based on anything you've done. But it's based on God. It's based on his mercy. And the way he did it was through regeneration, making you a new person, regeneration. You know, Genesis is creation. Regenesis is a new creation. That's how he did it. And it's nothing of you. That's the problem with false religions, works-based religions, Roman Catholicism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses. What's the problem is they try to earn God's grace by their works. Now, they talk about faith too, but they add to it works. They add to it works. And he clearly says here, just in little parenthetical, by grace you have been saved. That's, that's how God made you alive again, through the Holy Spirit, by his grace. It also comes before faith. I've mentioned that, First John 5, 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. But let's turn to what Jesus has to teach Nicodemus. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. And then we will move on to the second point after this. But this is where the, the heavy lifting is in this passage. Regeneration. Once, once a person has new life, then these other things are going to follow. John 3, 3. Jesus meets with Nicodemus at night. Nicodemus is a, a Pharisee. He's a teacher of Israel. He knows his Bible. And Jesus in 3, 3, Jesus answers Nicodemus. So Nicodemus wants to hear from the teacher. He wants to hear from the teacher, Jesus. He says, how do you do these signs? We know you're from God. We know you're from God. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You're never going to see it unless you've been born again. You're never going to see the kingdom of God. You're never going to see Christ's return. You're never going to see eternal life even unless you've been born again. I think Nicodemus knows what's going on here. I don't think he's dumb. But he answers here, probably mocking. How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus says, truly, truly, which is the way of saying, I'm serious about this. Amen, amen is is literally how it would be said in Greek. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit there, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Water's probably cleansing there of the Holy Spirit, Ezekiel 36 language. So he's been cleansed and he's been born of the Spirit. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. 
But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. You can't control the Holy Spirit. It's like the wind. You can't control the wind. The wind blows where it wishes. The wind does what it wishes. The Holy Spirit does the will of God, not man's will. You can't force somebody else to be saved. You can't even make God save somebody. You can pray for it. But Jesus says they have to be born again. This was the message that George Whitfield always preached when he came to America before the revolution. He was preaching in the colonies. And he would just stand up and say, you must be born again. And thousands of people would come and hear him. And he would preach from town to town. And this lady, she comes up to him. Why do you keep saying that we must be born again? Because everybody was a Christian back then, right? Kind of like the South. Everybody's a Christian. Why does he keep saying that? And he said, because lady, you must be born again. And that's what he kept preaching, this message over and over. The new birth. Because they thought they were saved based on their upbringing. They thought they were saved based on their good works. They thought because they went to church on Sunday and said their prayers or their Hail Marys or whatever, that they were somehow saved. They're not. So that's the first one. And that's, I think, the the main emphasis that Paul's been working in Ephesians 2 to get to, that we've been made alive. We've been born again. And he goes on in verse 6 now, the second point. We've been elevated in Christ. We've been elevated in Christ. Not only have we been made alive, so we're this dead body sitting in a toxic pool of sin and waste, just just rotting away. Suddenly we have a new heart, our heart's beating, spiritually speaking. We can breathe, we can see, the scales are falling off our eyes. We can see God's truth. Now he raises us up together with him. You won't see that word together in the NASB, but all three of these verbs, made alive, raised, and seated, all are kind of a combination word that Paul put together, two Greek words, and they all have the idea of together with Christ. We've been made alive together with Christ, and we've also been raised together with him. We were dead. We were dead, and yet he gives us life and raises us up out of that death. I think the best way to explain this is to go to Romans 6, because Paul talks more about it there. Go to Romans 6, verses 3 through 11. And he explains here through the picture of baptism. Now, some will say Romans 6 is about spirit baptism, but it doesn't really work with the the analogy he's trying to make, because he talks about going down, being dead, and then coming up, which is a symbol of baptism. So this is a passage I will often speak about when we're about to baptize somebody out here in the parking lot. Romans 6, starting in verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, so he's saying baptism is a picture of what happens in our hearts. We've been baptized into the name of Christ Jesus. We've been baptized into his death. Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Just like Christ died and went into the grave, he got put into the burial chamber. We were dead. We were dead. What happens in baptism? Well, you're signifying what's happened inside, what God's done inside you. And you go down into the water. That's a signification, Paul says, of your deadness. You went down because you're in Christ, though. You went down with Christ in his burial, and you're coming up new. You're coming up into newness of life. For if we have become united with him, there it is in 6.5, Romans 6.5, united with him, union with Christ in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now he's talking about holiness here. You've died to the old self and you've been raised with Christ. Live like it. Live like it, knowing this, 
that our old self was crucified with him. It's been put to death. The old self is put to death. He died for it. Stop going back to it in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin because we're not as Christians. We've been, we've been made alive. We're no longer slaves to the world, the devil and the flesh. We've been made alive for he who has died is freed from sin. We're dead. We can't be slave of sin anymore. We've died to it. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead. So he just keeps going with this Christ dying and being raised from the dead. We spiritually died and have come back to newness of life. He's never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Not that he was a sinner, but he died for our sin, to save sinners. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we've been elevated. We were in a position of laying down with the world. We were making our bed with the world, the devil, and the flesh. And when we have newness of life, God raises us up. Spiritually speaking, he's, he's bringing us up from the earth into the heavenly realm, which I'll mention here in a minute in Ephesians. So what should we do with that? I mean, we're, we're brand new creation. We've been elevated with Christ, just like he was elevated out of the tomb physically, we're spiritually. What should we do with this? Well, Paul, again, cross-referencing Colossians 3. Go to Colossians 3. It's a little bit forward of Ephesians. Here's the application. There's a lot of application. But here's one specific one that points us to how we ought to live now that we've been raised with Christ. How should we live? 3, Colossians 3, 1 through 3. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ. He's not assuming everybody who reads this letter, even in Colossae, is saved. If. The apostles did not know all things. The apostles did not look upon the congregation and know what was in everybody's heart. Test yourself, in other words. If you truly are in Christ and you've been raised up with him, here's this description again of being raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above. So what does this mean for us? Keep seeking the things above. Not the things of the earth, the devil, and the flesh. Those are the things below. But seek the things above. The things above. What are the things above? Well, they're things that are with Christ because he is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not the things that are on the earth. For you have died to that, in other words. That, that's, that stuff on the earth, you're, you're dead to it. Not that we don't still live on the earth, but we don't wallow in that sin. We don't live in that sin anymore. That's our old dead self. We don't want to go back to that. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So you're with Christ now. You're with Christ now. He says, live like it. Set your mind on the things above. Pushing it, I think, one step further. What are these things above? Let's go back to Philippians. Do a little Bible study here. Philippians 4.8. Set our mind on things above. That starts in the mind. It starts in the thought life. Before it lives itself out, it starts in the thought life. Ephesians 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true. What do we find truth? In Scripture, primarily. I mean, we can see other true things in the world, but we, we don't judge it rightly unless we know God's Word well. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, that's of God. Whatever is lovely, that's of God. Whatever is of good repute, that's of God. If there's any excellence and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And he goes on to say, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice them. 
How do we know what's true? How do we know what's right? How do we know what's lovely? By looking at Scripture and living it out because we've been raised with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. The things above are what we should focus on. No longer under the control of the world, we've been raised up. Number three, he says in Ephesians 2, 6, we have been exalted in Christ as well. Not only have we been made alive, and that's the miracle right there that we've even been made alive, but he's also elevated us from that position of deadness in the world. He's raised us up and he's exalted us. God didn't have to do any of these things and look what he's done for us. He's exalted us. We're no longer dead. We're no longer laying at the bottom of the pit. We're no longer rotting in our transgressions. Where are we? He says he seated us together. This is the third verb that Paul's kind of slammed together from two words. He seated us with him is what your translation says, but it's seated us together with him. What did he do with Christ? Look back, Ephesians 1. Remember what God's power, how it was displayed in Christ? 120. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. We're there with Christ. We've been raised with him, but we've been seated with him. Now, we don't get the subjection to everything under our feet. We don't get to be head of the church, like he goes on to say in chapter 1. But we get an exalted position. Would you have thought, as an unbeliever in your sin, that you would ever be seated with Christ at the right hand of God, spiritually speaking? Maybe, maybe in your pride you thought that, but now we look back and say, this is amazing, seated with Christ. And where is he at? He's at the right hand of the Father. Physically, he's there, and spiritually, we're with him because we're united with him. That can't be separated. Can God hear my prayers as a Christian? Christ is right there, and you're with Christ. Is God, has he got my, my good in mind? The Bible says, yes, he does, but also remember, You're united with Christ and he is seated right there and you're seated, spiritually speaking, with him. Every believer in Christ is in the heavenly realm. You see that? Seated together with him. Where's he at? He's in the heavenly places and we're seated with him, with Christ, in Christ. Remember Paul? He started the letter by saying that we're saints in Ephesus. He's writing to the Ephesians. He says, to the saints in Ephesus and what? Believers. It might say faithful, but it's actually better translated believers. Believers where? In Christ. You're in Ephesus with all its worldliness, he says. You're in Ephesus. You're a, you're a holy one. You're a saint, but you're amongst the world. But remember, you remember you're with Christ, who's right next to the Father. You're seated with him, is what he's going on to say. We're here. We're on this earth. There's sin throughout. We still fight sin inside. There's sin all around us. There's temptation. The devil's tempting us. But remember... You're seated with Christ because you've been raised with him and you've been seated with him and even more exalted. I mean, it's enough that we've been made alive. That's, that's a great honor. To be, to be raised, to be elevated from the state of, of laying down dead upon the earth is great. And now we've been exalted as well. All in the past tense already happened, spiritually speaking. That's amazing. There's no other religious system that could ever come close to the Wonderful promises of the true religion, Christianity, the true Bible-believing religion. He's in the heavenly places. Chapter 1, verse 3 said, that's where every spiritual blessing is found. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I, I don't see all of your spiritual blessings now. This isn't the prosperity gospel. I can't look at you and you can't look at me and say, wow, God has just poured out everything upon you. No, there are some blessings in this life, 
but they're in the heavenly places, the real eternal ones, and the spiritual places, the heavenly realm. We can't see them yet. We will someday, though. We will. Also in this heavenly places where Peter says in 1 Peter that there's an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away and it's reserved in heaven for you. It's also where our thoughts and desires should be. Remember, set your mind on things above. Set your mind on things in the heavenly realm. Now the de- demons are in the heavenly realm too, in the spiritual realm. They're not actually in heaven necessarily, but they're, they're wandering around the spiritual realm. But set your mind on things where God is and where Christ is because he's seated right there. We praise the Lord for that. Well, the blessings aren't done. If you're united with Christ, you don't only get a new life. You don't only get to be elevated from death. You don't only get to be exalted, spiritually speaking, to sit with Christ. But fourthly and lastly, we've been displayed in Christ. This is interesting. We have been displayed for the world, for the universe. If you're in Christ, you've been displayed. What does that mean? Verse 7, so that all of this has happened, and as wonderful as it is, so that, that means a purpose is coming. There's a purpose that God's been doing these things, all these three actions, uh, made alive, uh, raised, and seated. They're all going towards a purpose. That in the ages to come, now notice it says ages. That's, that includes right now. There's this age. There's, there's the age when Christ comes back. Of course, he'll rule for a thousand years there. And then there's an eternal age after that. And all of those ages, starting even now, that he might show. That's the display part. He's going to show the surpassing riches of his grace. All of that happened. Why? So that we could be saved? Yes, praise the Lord. But again, don't pat yourself on the back because Paul's saying it's, it's actually for God's glory that we could praise him. That's the primary purpose. All of that is for God's glory because he's doing this because he loves us, because he has mercy for us, but also to show the riches of his grace, the surpassing riches of his grace. They're, they're undescribable. They're so, they're so high. They're so great. They're surpassing. God desires to show the universe his sovereign grace. It's not just for us that gets to see God's grace. It's not just can. It's not just joy, but it's everybody and the whole universe will look and see, wow, look at God's grace, and look at God's grace. And, you know, every knee will bow. I think that's a time when people will see God's grace and all that he saved. And throughout eternity, the whole creation, in a sense, will be praising God because of what he's done through saving people, through saving those in Christ. Now, you might say, well, look, I don't always feel like I'm united with Christ. I don't always feel like I'm united with Christ because I still sin. How can I be united with Christ? Well, first the passage says, if you're in Christ, you have been united with him. God's done it to show his surpassing riches. And even at the end of of verse 7, in kindness. Again, God's mercy, God's love, God's grace, God's kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. But you might say, you know, I I still sin. How can I be united with him? Well, they're still indwelling sin. The Bible talks about that. You're still fighting sin. That doesn't mean you're not united with Christ, but you're not to go and and join with the world and the devil and the flesh again. But at the same time, you still sin. You're still fighting sin. There's no perfection in this life. John says, don't don't ever say that you don't sin. That's heresy. You're not going to be perfect in this life. You will when you get that resurrected body, the true body that we're going to get. 
But the question is not to say, do I ever sin? If you're wondering if you're in Christ, then the question is, have I experienced this new birth? Do I have a changed heart? Have my affections been changed? Has my life been changed? Does it look different than it used to? Do I want to do things that I never wanted to do before? Do I want to be around God's people? Do I love one another? Do I want to read the Word? Do I want to hear good preaching from the Word? Do I want to pray? Not all the time, but in general. What does your life look like? How is it progressing over time? Don't don't look to where you grew up and what your parents did for you and the works you've done. But have you experienced a heart change? Are you in Christ? Have you been made alive again? Because if you haven't, the Bible says, then you're not born again. If you haven't seen this heart change, you need to call upon God. You need to pray. You need to ask Him, please change my heart. But if you have, and you know it, you need to praise Him. You need to thank Him. You need to love Him. You need to tell others about this. This is a great evangelistic passage. I was just talking to a, a brother before the service about how to talk to his Roman Catholic relative. It's a passage like this is good. You're dead. God made you alive. And he's done it all by his grace. It's the gospel in a nutshell. You might say some other things as well, but that's a good place to start. Father, we come before you thanking you for a passage like this, thanking you for regeneration, raising us from the dead, seating us with Christ, and and putting us on display. I mean, we're unworthy sinners, and you're showing the world. You're showing these sinners that you've saved You're putting us on display to show everyone your grace. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for using us to glorify your name. Thank you for giving us new life. Help us to live like it. Help us to live like Christ has called us to. We ask that you would do this and save those, Lord, who have a dead and stony heart. Give them a new one. Even today as they hear the word being preached. In the name of Christ, amen.